welcome to the CND podcast. I'm Naima Kalachand and I'm the clinical editor. Today, I'm going to be speaking to allergy expert, Dr. Elizabeth Andier. Dr. Andier is a portfolio GP with a specialist interest in allergy. She was a previous chair of the primary care group at the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and is the current chair of the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology Working Group in Primary Care. Dr. Angier has a vast experience of improving the care of allergy in the community. This is the first in a series of three podcasts that have been developed in partnership with Perry from the makers of Peritin. Today, we're going to be discussing the differential diagnosis between allergy and COVID-19. Many patients may be particularly concerned about their allergy and its management during the COVID-19 pandemic, so pharmacists are well-placed to give patients advice and reassurance during these unprecedented times. I started off the interview by asking Dr. Angier about the difference between initial symptoms of allergy and COVID-19 and if there are any overlap. Here's what she had to say. This is probably one of the first times the world is actually seeing how allergy patients might be interpreting things because they've always had to be careful about allergens, particularly, for instance, in something like food allergy, where they might be concerned about food allergy particles. So you could actually say that allergy patients are one step ahead of the game because they've always been aware of their environment and their circumstances. If you think about what the circumstances could be, you could actually have somebody who's got allergic rhinitis, you could actually have somebody who's got COVID symptoms, or potentially you could have somebody who's got both. So looking at differentiating features, one of the differentiating features of allergy tends to be itching. So many patients of allergies, if they've had allergies over many years, will recognise the same and familiar symptoms. And these tend to be seasonal. So if you have, for instance, grass allergy, you're probably going to get your same symptoms every year around May or June. And if it's birch allergy, that might be a little bit earlier in the year, for instance, April. So if you know about your allergies and you know the seasonality, you may recognise your allergy features coming back. And in a sense, that might give you a bit more confidence that, okay, that's coming back. How do I treat that? But then with this new era and this new virus, there may be other symptoms alongside. And then you might say to yourself, well, how do I work out what's going on? So for rhinitis, it's an inflammation of the nasal mucosa. And it's generally two of these features, which is a runny nose, blockage, sneezing or itching. So on the rhinitis side, you've probably got your itching and you may have some eye symptoms overlapping symptoms of both COVID and rhinitis, particularly in the early stages, could be runny nose, blocked nose and sneezing. But then if you're actually into the COVID side and and that starts to carry on for a few more days, you're probably going to have symptoms of fever and cough. So the COVID and the coronavirus is actually quite a mimicker at the moment. And we're realising that we're seeing more symptoms and understanding more about this condition. But there are other symptoms such as malaise, myalgia, anosmia, which is like a, a loss of smell, and diarrhoea, some GI symptoms. So if you're more onto that side and they're persisting, then it's more likely that you've actually got symptoms of coronavirus. The NHS at the moment is sort of flagging cough and fever as differentiating factors, but we have realised and seen that over, and and particularly in different age groups, that there are a number of other features presenting. You can get cough with rhinitis, but that tends to be if it's triggering asthma. So I would say 
itching, eye symptoms, your general things that you're used to with allergies, more likely to be allergy. This overlap in the early period of runny nose, blockage and sneezing. But then if you're heading more towards fever, malaise, significant cough, loss of smell, that might be more coronavirus. What should patients do if they're worried about symptoms? The best thing to do if you're concerned is to monitor those symptoms. If you think it's your normal allergy symptoms, then you'd be treating them as you would normally. If you're more on the side of fever and malaise and feeling unwell, then that's probably something you should be contacting your GP about or 111. Why is it important for patients to have allergy symptoms under control during this time? Clearly, I'm biased because I'm a GP with an interest in allergy. I actually think it's always important to get your allergy symptoms under control because if you have poorly controlled allergy symptoms, particularly in rhinitis, we know that that can affect your quality of life. We know that it can cause problems with sleeping, work productivity, concentration, and that you generally feel tired. So as somebody who works in an allergy clinic, we always promote good allergy control. In these extraordinary circumstances that we're in now, an allergy patient with poor allergy control might run into a few difficulties. So if your allergy is not in control, particularly with something like rhinitis, you might have a runny nose, you might have sneezing and you might have coughing. That in itself is quite difficult in a public situation because other people might be concerned about your symptoms and assume that your allergy was coronavirus. And that might make that difficult for you in that environment. And the other thing is, is actually, potentially, if you do have coronavirus as well, then you might be spreading that more. So for your own symptom control and your own appreciation of a better quality of life, we would be promoting this anyway. But in these circumstances, it's within your own interest and others to have good allergy control. Are there things that you could recommend that as a GP or as pharmacists as well, what we could do to help patients with their allergy management? Yes. First thing to say about your allergy management is is to say to yourself, is this allergy and how would I go about that? So the cornerstone of allergy management is recognising what the triggers might be and taking a history. So for instance, if you're a pharmacist and somebody comes to you and says, I think I've got allergy symptoms, then the most important thing that you can do is actually take a good history. Clearly now the way that people interact in pharmacies and in GP practices has changed. There's a lot more online discussion and it may be that patients are actually going online to get information. And we have a resources podcast in our third section But if I was an allergy patient and if I was looking for advice or if I was a pharmacist talking to them and in my GP practice, the first thing I do is I I, I take a history to find out actually what's going on. We know, for instance, that we are actually seeing quite a lot of multiple allergies presenting together, whereas years ago we used to see people with just grass allergy. Now we're seeing people with grass and tree allergy and perhaps um, a component of house dust allergy. Some patients may have allergic rhinitis or mixed rhinitis, which may be non-allergic. And there are some patients who have occupational allergies as well. So as a pharmacist, it's a little bit like a Sherlock Holmes. So if somebody comes to you and says, I think I've got allergy problems, you need to take a good history. And we will cover that in more depth in the next podcast. But what you might want to ask is when they get it, where, what makes it worse or what makes it better and possible treatments. If there's a family history, it's more likely. And then you check about associated symptoms. If you're that patient, 
there's some things that you can do if you think that, for instance, you've got a pollen allergy that might be helpful. We recommend if you've got mild symptoms, and this is on a shared decision basis, that you might want to be looking at avoidance. So for instance, you can check what the pollen count is. There's lots of apps that you could do that with. You might want to be washing your clothes and keeping them inside so they're not on the line outside with pollens. You might want to be washing your hair at night so you're not sleeping with pollen around your face and your head at night. If you go outside and there's lots of pollen and you're coming in, you might want to change your clothes. You might want to wear sunglasses. Some people have recommended in the past that you use Vaseline around your nose to stop the pollen going in. So everybody has their own approach as to what they want to do. Sometimes the pollen counters can be higher in the evening, although it's released in the morning. Depending on what the temperature of day, you can get like a pollen shower in the evening. So people might want to close their windows then. So you can find your own routines for what you think your avoidance might be. And for instance, with house dust mite, that might be delegating something like dusting to another member of the family so that you're not disturbing the dust yourself. So that's one of the ways that you can control your allergies. So avoidance is something important in Allergy UK and those charities are very good on advice and we'll signpost to those resources. The other thing you might want to do is you might want to think about medication and as a pharmacist, somebody comes to you. We know now that patients often go into pharmacists and that they may have had symptoms for some time. So it's trying to gauge whether they've got mild symptoms or moderate to severe and often patients underestimate their symptoms. So as a pharmacist, if you feel confident in this, you might actually want to set some goals with them. You might want to say, what is it? What symptoms do you want to be free of? And how do you think we can achieve that? Because actually people sometimes without somebody with having the benefit of speaking to somebody who knows about rhinitis, their goals might be quite low. So they might actually accept that they're going to have a blocked nose and sneezing all the time and just put in intermittent medication when it really gets on top of them. Whereas actually, if you agree a goal with them to say, okay, these symptoms to get under control will take this time, I will require you to try this for this period of time. And our goal would be that you're not continually sneezing, that your blocked nose is better and then let's see how we go with that and review it, then that, that might be one way to approach it. Again, completely dependent on patients, you might want to try an antihistamine. So often people have low goals and they just might have mild symptoms. So if somebody came to me with mild symptoms and often people will come and they might actually choose the antihistamines themselves because they'll have to come to you and put the box on the counter, having made that decision. But perhaps that decision wasn't made with the benefit of the understanding of the difference between the medications. So generally, we recommend for mild symptoms and, and antihistamines, if that's your medication of choice, to take a second or third generation antihistamine, which is long acting and non-sedating. The reason why we do that is because it doesn't affect their daily life generally, although it's quite patient specific and we need to warn them and say, most people don't have problems with this. Um, the second and third generations cause less drowsiness and work over a longer time. So they may actually put a box of a first generation antihistamine because that's the one that they're used to and they're not aware of the differences. And in fairness, if that's one that they suit and they don't feel that they're getting sedated, that's reasonable. But they should be aware of the differences between the antihistamines. We know, for instance, with the first generation sedating antihistamines are worked by Samantha Walker, 2007, that adolescents actually um, and teenagers actually dropped to grade in their exams on sedating antihistamines. So I think people should be made aware of the differences of those properties and to make their own choice 
with the benefit of the input from the pharmacist and also to switch if it doesn't suit them. Some patients may prefer to use a nasal spray. What advice can pharmacists give patients on these? If they wanted to take a nasal steroid spray, then that's something that is worth telling them a number of different things about. So what we tend to advise with nasal steroids is that it's probably going to take six or eight hours to work and two weeks before you'll see any significant benefit. It's really important to take these daily. You might want to take them twice a day. But also there's a number of different varieties that you can get within the pharmacist. This might change because there have been changes to what's going on to script. But to my understanding at the moment, and what you want to do is they they have similar clinical efficacy, but they actually have variable bioavailability. So the amount of steroid that actually goes around the body is different, but with a similar efficacy. So you would actually want to advise patients to go for the smaller bioavailability nasal steroid sprays, things like monometasone furate and fluticasone furate particularly if they are using them for a longer period of time. Again, that's their decision, but they need to have an informed decision and be aware of how those medications are absorbed, the importance of the technique of taking them, taking them on a daily basis. And you'd also check that there's no contraindications to using nasal sprays such as glaucoma. What steps should you take for patients who present in your pharmacy with poorly controlled allergy symptoms? So if a patient came to your counter and said, I think I've got hay fever, it's poorly controlled, you'd be wanting to take a good history, which we'll go over. You'd be wanting to ask what medications they've tried so far. I've explained a little bit about antihistamine, signposting to the non-sedating, long-acting, second or third generation. If they have brought a nasal spray to the counter, you might want to ask them, do they know how to use it? You might want to spend a bit of time going over that because that's really essential. And of course, as a normal part of your allergy advice, you'd be talking about avoidance, which we've just explained. And there's another aspect about nasal douching that people might want to try because we know that that's helpful in allergy and they could follow the instructions on how to use that. So far, we have discussed the difference between symptoms of allergy and COVID-19 and where there may be overlap. We talked about the importance of controlling allergy symptoms and promoting good allergy control and how pharmacists can best advise patients on allergy avoidance and the available treatments that can be bought over the counter. After this short break, we'll be talking to Dr. Angier about the guidelines that should be followed in allergy treatment and how pharmacists are well-placed to help manage allergy in patients. We will then be discussing the differences in severity of symptoms between adults and children. If you want to keep up to date with the latest news and clinical information on COVID-19, you can access our Coronavirus Hub for free on our website. If you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on iTunes or your preferred Android app. Now we'll get back to the interview. What guidelines should pharmacists refer to if they want to know what treatments to recommend for rhinitis? I think it's helpful to refer to the British Society of Clinical Allergy and Immunology, the BSACI guidelines. There are some primary care translations of those and there are some patient information sheets which we will signpost in your resources. There's also a standard operating procedure to use a nasal spray on the BSACI website The BSACI guidelines are done by a number of stakeholders as part of their guideline group, and they actually walk you through 
the different treatment approaches that you can take. So they'll show you about mild rhinitis, moderate, what to do if they don't respond to the different types of antihistamines or nasal sprays. Some of those medications clearly are prescription only and they also take you right through to maximal dose medical treatment of which the pharmacist is definitely in the first stage but also point you through to things like red flags, things where you might be concerned. So for instance if somebody came into the pharmacist and was having bleeding from the side of the nose, a unilateral discharge, pain or just pure simple watery discharge, that's probably something that you'd be asking them red flags for a doctor to see. But if you don't have those red flags and you're confident in your history, you can treat up to a good level to get your patients using the sprays regularly or antihistamines, having that good relationship and understanding the goals and then knowing, actually, if this isn't working, I can refer to the GP who can add in a prescription medicine. And then if that doesn't work, they may be going down the immunotherapy pathway, which would be an allergy specialist. At the moment, many patients are asking for allergy referral specialists without having gone through the avoidance, the understanding of the the medical management pathway. And particularly, there's often an adherence failure or not an understanding of how to use the sprays. And either the pharmacist or the pharmacy assistant are very well placed to give that advice and to form that good relationship because then that actually saves the patient time because they might actually get complete resolution of symptoms and not need any further input. But if they do, by the time that they've seen the GP or the specialist, they're ready for that next layer of intervention rather than to being sent back from hospital to say, try these sprays for three months when they could have done that anyway with really good pharmacist advice who are ideally placed for this. Thanks, Liz. And now I want to move on to talk about the differences in adult and children presentation of symptoms. So in your opinion, are adults more likely to have severe symptoms? Adults can have more severe symptoms. I think it's more like that the symptoms can present in different ways. So sometimes it's difficult for children to explain their symptoms completely depending on their age. But also children might present with difficulty with hearing, poor concentration and poor sleeping. And that might not be recognised as problems that might be hay fever. So Children can sometimes have, alongside the typical features of runny nose, rhinitis and itchy eyes, that concentration, cough and hearing problems. In some cases, particularly with COVID, we think children are much less affected. And that might be for reasons that we don't quite understand about the immune system. But we do have some children, a small percentage that have very severe allergies that may not respond to maximal medical dose treatment and need immunotherapy. But we may have other children that will either present with standard rhinitis features that we understand or that the teacher might be saying they can't hear me in class or they're falling asleep in class or they're coughing. And then you might need to think, actually, is that a child who isn't concentrating and not interested? Or actually, have I asked that history about rhinitis and have I treated that appropriately? What would you recommend for adults with persisting symptoms despite allergen avoidance? Despite allergens avoidance and saline douching, which is the things that we tend to recommend first, for mild symptoms, you could advise antihistamines. We've gone over, as before, the different types of antihistamines, tends to be second and third generation, and as an individual discussion. For moderate symptoms, you might want to consider nasal steroids, 
depending on your patient's preference, some patients might want to try nasal steroids. If they're going to do that, they need to understand how to use the nasal steroids, that they need to use them regularly, that it will take two weeks for them to take an effect. And after using them, it's generally about six to eight hours. And they need to get into a routine. If they're getting the allergies every year and they want to try and prevent those allergies coming back. So for instance, if I had grass allergy and I knew that I had it really badly the year before, I might want to say to myself, oh, actually, and I've been trying sprays, I'm going to start those sprays two weeks before my allergy season starts next year. Then you've actually stabilised that nasal membrane before your allergy symptoms have started because what tends to happen is that patients let their allergy symptoms build up and then are disappointed that they don't get immediate resolution. So if you're getting allergy every year, you can predict almost when those symptoms are coming along or you will know from the pollen forecast and you might want to start your sprays early. If you've just got mild symptoms, you might want to try some antihistamine. If you've actually got some of the later symptoms of nasal blockage, some people use a nasal decongestion and you can get these over the counter. If somebody comes to you with that, it's actually something you really need to ask about because some people use that all the time because they get immediate relief, but then they get a rebound swelling. So things like otravine, xylomatozolone, you would want to use that as an allergic rhinitis treatment only for about three to five days to bring down the swelling in the nose. And then you start using the nasal sprays regularly. And if you are using the nasal sprays regularly, you're using the nasal sprays with a smaller bioavailability like monometasone, furate and fluticasone because you don't want to use ones with a higher bioavailability for long periods of time. Another treatment that's been successful in some patients, and if you look on the BSACI guidelines, it's something called a dimester spray. I'm not aware that that one is available over the counter and it's sort of midway down the pathway. So it's after you've tried your antihistamines and your regular nasal steroids. Not everybody likes the taste of dimester spray in fairness, but it has had some really good results. And again, it's patient specific. So be checking adherence, checking that they're compliant, trying those other medications and working your way down that pathway. In the allergy clinic, we tend to use higher dosages on all medications. And that's the reality that everybody else before they've come to see us has tried higher medications. In the pharmacist and in the general practitioners, you might only be confident with recommending standard dose antihistamines and nasal sprays and that's fair enough. I think the moment that you have with them is actually to reinforce that they need regular treatment, that they need to understand the side effects and that they need to adjust their treatment and then you could actually give them the opportunity to review their symptoms and come back into the pharmacist and discuss that with you. Thanks Liz and I guess at the minute we know that adults can actually suffer more severe symptoms with COVID-19 so you would want to ensure that you're treating their allergies optimally as well. Yeah you would and, and, and we do know that and the other thing to say is that our understanding at the moment is children have milder symptoms and the adults have more severe. There are some adult symptoms that are almost silent so some people feel quite well but the oxygen saturation is quite low. So what you want to do is you actually want to be in the peak condition and the NHS is advising this across all parameters. So if you're obese, you want to lose some weight. If you're not fit, you want to be in the fittest position possible for this virus that comes to meet any of us because it can happen to any of us. In the situation of allergic rhinitis plus or minus asthma, you'd want to treat those optimally so that 
for instance, 80% of people with asthma have allergic rhinitis, you'd want to treat your rhinitis because that helps with your asthma control. That puts you in a better place should you unfortunately get coronavirus. We're not sure the risk factor of asthma and coronavirus, what place that puts you, but any long-term condition needs to have optimal management and rhinitis using the one airway is actually you treat your rhinitis well, your asthma is well controlled. Is the approach in children for the treatment of rhinitis, is it the same as what we would do in adults as well? I think the, the approach in children is more tailored. So on the BSACI guideline, there is the, there's a small table, an algorithm for the approach in children. So the dosages of the antihistamines are slightly different. That would be how you would train them with your sprays. And you can use in adults as well, Montelukast, but there's age, there's different age ranges for that. And of course, you'd, you'd be looking at your avoidance and your nasal tooting if that was if that was there. So I think the approach in children is a very good history. The medications that you can use safely within that range for that age group and then titrating up according to that table. I think with the approach with children is is an understanding of, of how to take those medications, confidence for the child and the parents giving those medications, appropriate review and deciding when you might want to either upgrade your medications or whether you want to to step back. You also need to be aware of things in the house like pets and whether that might be any triggers. And I just wanted to finish on one final question. So obviously at the minute we know during the pandemic, GPs, community pharmacists, emergency departments, everyone's working slightly differently during the pandemic. Where should patients seek advice if they're suffering from allergy symptoms or worry that potentially that they could have COVID-19? So just for your general allergy symptoms, I think there's actually been a real boost in self-management at the moment, understandably, and people want to understand more and take control of their symptoms. So the first thing to do always is to look at self-management. And actually, if you went onto your GP website, you may well see a line that directs you to say, if you have hay fever, try these things first, which might be antihistamines or nasal sprays. Some people are understandably reluctant about going into pharmacists and some people are still going in. So you might want to ask your pharmacist, if you were to ask your GP about your allergy symptoms, that may actually be via an e-consult platform now. So you go in and uh, because the majority of GPs at the moment are actually doing virtual consultations or e-consultations first before they're deciding to bring people down. And that is a change in the culture and how we're seeing patients. But actually, we're seeing that a number of GPs and patients prefer this because if you think about the travel and the waiting room and all the other difficulties that that come along with trying to get to see your GP, the other forms and platforms of communication are quite helpful. So you'd probably want, if it was just allergy symptoms, to have a look about what you can do yourself, what you can get, whether that's online or via a pharmacist, whether that's antihistamines or nasal sprays. And then if you're still struggling, you might want to ask for advice and that might be via an electronic platform or something called Accurex, where actually you phone back the GP and they speak to you by video phone. So if you want to ask your pharmacist about that, there may be platforms for doing that or online, or you might be going in. Particularly for COVID-type symptoms, the current situation is that GPs are 
operating what we're calling hot sites and cold sites. On cold sites, they're seeing the general and routine general practice after triaging the calls to make sure that, that, that those things are okay. And for hot sites, again, that will be a, probably a double triage call into that site. You may well be asked to go via the 111 system, which is currently in place, and they have an algorithm about COVID type symptoms. There is actually a new pathway that's being developed, and I think this is very important because. We recognise now that there are some people who may have risk factors that are more likely to cause problems with their COVID. And if you phone up and speak to 111, they may be assessing those risk factors and they might actually, as I've mentioned before, there's a group of patients who have symptoms that don't necessarily get significantly short of breath, but have actually dropped their oxygen saturations quite significantly. And maybe that you actually are reviewed at home with an oxygen saturation monitor that's delivered to your house and a self-diary to get an idea of what those oxygen saturations are. And somebody is calling you to check what your respiratory rate is and what your oxygen saturation is and making a decision that you, it may be that you're assessed at home or in the hot site. It may be that you need to be admitted to hospital, but there may actually be a form of monitoring called an oxygen saturation pathway. Allergy patients and asthma patients probably already know quite a bit about self-management and may well have things like peak flow monitors and be aware of their respiratory rate and taking those types of things. But the oxygen saturation is probably a new thing and something that is helping us understand more about coronavirus. And the peak flow monitors that somewhere where pharmacists can potentially consult patients and even with their inhalers as well, they can kind of refresh them on how to use them and make sure that, you know, they're managing their symptoms during this time. Yeah, I think with asthma, clearly that's another really important field of self-management. And it may well be that they'll be picking up those regular inhalers from their pharmacist and the peak flow will be issued there. So there's often good self-management plans. Asthma UK has got a lot of information about that. And most pharmacists, I think, would be checking that they understood about their inhalers and that they would know how to use a peak flow. And those are things that are helpful to monitor particularly in these times of the pandemic. So if you get your rhinitis control right, that helps your asthma. You need to monitor your asthma. If then you're unfortunate enough to get coronavirus on top of that, we would be interested in your oxygen saturation. But if the other things are in place to control your asthma optimally, then you're in a better position. And that concludes today's podcast. Today we discussed how pharmacists can reassure and advise worried patients who are concerned about their allergy and COVID-19. We discussed the importance of symptom control during this time and whether those with allergy may be at increased risk of more severe symptoms of COVID-19. This podcast was developed in partnership with Perry from the makers of Periton. Thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Angier for speaking to me today. Dr. Angier is a portfolio GP with a specialist interest in improving the care of allergy in the community and is the current chair of the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology Working Group in Primary Care. I'll be speaking to Dr. Angier in the next two podcasts in this series on allergy patient confidence during the COVID-19 crisis, as well as discussing the resources that are available for allergy patients. If you can't wait for these next episodes, we have loads of news and clinical articles on COVID-19 on our coronavirus hub on our website. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to C&D Podcasts. Thank you for listening.